listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Praise God. It's so good to be back together again, and just even in limited form, right? And if you're worshiping with us at home, we're so glad. Like, I, I wanted to make sure not to apply any pressure to people who just weren't ready to exit the house yet. And, and so we're so glad that you're with us on home just as much. So thank you for, for tuning in. Uh, right now, I would love to invite my, my brother, uh, Kevin Pringle, to the platform. He's going to bring a word. I want to just tell you a little bit about Kevin. Um, and I, Kevin and I met through a, come on up, bro. Uh, Kevin and I met through a mutual friend of ours named Dave Gilmore. And uh, uh, if you talk to Kevin for any length of time, he will say, I was talking to my friend the other day, um, or I was talking to my friend yesterday, and Kevin has, he makes friends wherever he goes, literally. I've been with him, like, the very first time uh, you guys mostly, probably all you know that Augie's is my spot locally, the coffee shop I go to and frequent and build relationships there and have ton, like lots of friends. But the first time Kevin went to Augie's with me, like he met like five people I didn't know and was like exchanging contact information with them that day. So just, uh, just Kevin is such an incredible guy. He makes friends wherever he goes and we were fast friends and more than that brothers and so um so would you welcome kevin pringle to bring the word today good morning man what it's an honor to be here uh this morning just uh for one just to be able to share um god's heart with you but uh in light of everything that we're witnessing in our in our country, in our culture, it's it's a double honor to be a part of this this morning as well. And I just want to commend my my brother Jason for being willing to take risk. Um, and uh, he was one of the first people who called me uh, last week and just reached, just wanted to reach out and. Uh, and it wasn't this kind of token response um, that I need to check in on my black friend, but it was it was um, it was sincerity in his heart to begin to ask questions and to allow us to enter into a dialogue that's been long overdue. Would you agree? Yeah. Amen. So pray with me as we uh, move into this. By the way, I'm. I'm, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Lord, I want to thank you that you created space and you, you did it in such a unique way and such an unexpected way that none of us would have fathomed. And we think it's inconvenient but yet it's so necessary and so timely. It's not out of your character. It's not out of your nature. 
It's not out of your will. It's, it's a part of what you've been authoring. And now we're catching up with you. And so, Lord, I want to thank you that you're allowing this, this moment to happen. A, a moment that you saw from eternity. And now you're saying it's time. And so, Lord, I just want to say thank you. And, Lord, I, I'm, I'm asking you that as one of your children that you would just allow me just to, to be able to speak um, your heart. I want to put my own agenda aside so that you can be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm only going to share with you briefly because uh, we're going to, Jason and I are going to enter into a conversation that you guys get to be a part of. And I'm glad that, you know, we're in this intimate setting. <laughs> what an interesting time that we've been living in. Which, <laughs> are you kidding me? My mom is 91 years old, and uh, I was asking her when the, when the pandemic of uh, COVID-19 began, and, you know, and all of a sudden there, there's these thoughts and panic, and, you know, and I can remember, I, I, you know, uh, during that time when it was announced, and, you know, I was, like, driving or something, and I coughed. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I got the Rona, you know. <laughs> You know, because all this fear started being uh, uh, pushed into to our culture and in our minds, and and we 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 started thinking, is it even safe to touch people now? Is it is it safe to be next to you? And, and we we didn't know, and we don't we still don't know the rules of how how we're supposed to behave, just in regards to a virus. And now we have this racial thing that for some seem to just pop up, I'll tell you, it hasn't. And now we're having to feel, uh, deal with this on the heels of having to deal with a viral crisis. And I think a lot of us just wanted to breathe. We just want to get over the COVID first before having to deal with anything else. And, and it honestly, it left me kind of scratching my head thinking, God, God I don't, I don't, what are you doing? I, I don't understand. First of all, this whole, let's be honest, when we first heard about, heard about corona, did you really think it was going to affect us? No. Because it affected other people in another country. And we were like, our response is, oh, that's, that's bad for them. And I'll be honest with you, and this is going to sound, it, it, it'll sound racial. When, when I first heard about COVID, I was stopped at a gas station, and I noticed that there were Asian people in the gas station wearing masks. And I'm like, oh. And I want to wipe off everything they touched. Because that's how we think. Let's just be honest. Can we do that for a moment? Can we just be honest with each other about how we filter things? Because that's what happens. And so all this stuff started happening. All of a sudden, George Floyd is murdered. And most of us are left on wondering how we're supposed to respond to this. And some of us are still wondering, 
I have a two-year-old grandson, and uh, <laughs> my daughter's potty training him. It's not going well. But we all know there's going to come a time where he'll master it, hopefully. (laughs) But right now, when he makes mistakes and makes a mess, we kind of look at it and say, well, he's just learning. But if he's 10 and still doing this, (laughs) we got a problem. And I want to paint that picture as far as our culture goes as well. There's a mess that was made, (laughs) and forgive the analogy, but in the pants of our culture, we were dumped on. And we can't say, well, we're just learning, because it's been going on forever. And we can no longer excuse it and just put it off as something that... uh, We're just at the beginning stages of. What we're at the beginning stages of is beginning to talk about it honestly. And with that, we can have patience with one another. We can be be patient with each other because the conversation is just starting. So we might say some things that, that... we trip over our words. We might say some things that offend each other. We don't have to worry right now about being politically correct. We don't have to worry right now about saying the right thing. We just need to talk. We just need to start talking. And see, the picture I'm trying to paint is when this whole COVID thing began, I loved it that God shut down the church. I loved it. And that, this is me talking as a pastor. It's not because I didn't want to work. <laughs> it's because God was inviting us into something different and something deeper than what we've been used to. And what he was saying was, I want to invite you into a conversation with me, about me, together. And see, what we do on Sunday mornings, typically, it's just a conversation about God, but not a conversation with God. And we tell people, we've been teaching people how to behave, but we really haven't been teaching people how to engage into one another. And honestly, what happens in most churches across this country on Sunday morning is actually evil. You know why I say that? Because we're still okay with having black churches and white churches. And now God is saying, tired of it it's enough this is what I actually want to share with you it's from the book of Esther had the privilege of going through this this past week in the book of Esther for those of you who may or might not know The name of God isn't mentioned one time in the book of Esther. And I love that. Because when you read it, it's very clear that God is present. Even though his name isn't mentioned. I've had Christian friends 
say to me, who, and, and these, are, these are white friends, say to me, oh, Kevin, you know, this whole George Floyd thing, this whole racism thing, this isn't, this isn't a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. I'm like, yeah, but shut up. <laughs> because you're using that as an excuse to continue not doing anything. And we say we don't want to come. We don't want to. We don't want to combine religion and politics. Those things need to stay separate. You know, God doesn't look at it that way, because God sets leadership in place. So if He's not involved in government, how can we trust Him with the spiritual only? God's hand is in actually everything that we experience. And the same people who will say this is a spiritual issue are the same people who will tell me, well, God puts certain people in leadership. What? Shut up. And when you read the book of Esther, even though it doesn't name God, God's name isn't used, you see God's fingerprint all the way through it. In the chapter 3, it says, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid him homage. Mordecai was a Jew. He was brought into captivity, and the Jews were spread throughout the, prom- the, the provinces of King, some calling Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Many Jews were brought into those prom- provinces to serve his authority. They were taken, listen to this, they were taken from their country and brought into another one to serve that nation. And that nation benefited from the work of the Jews. You with me? Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was then that they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he told, he told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he, dis, but he disdained to, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of, of Ahasuerus. I don't know if you caught it, but this is a racial issue. Racism has been around for a long time. It didn't start with George Floyd, and it won't end with him. Unless we decide to do something different. I won't read the rest of it. I'll just kind of, I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically, what Haman did 
he met with the king. He manipulated the king. He said, here's what I want you to do. There's a people that won't honor you. But it really was about him. He said, what you need to do, you need to destroy all those people. So why don't you write an edict, and I'll make sure that it's enforced. And what it was, he tricked king, the king to, to write out an edict that all the Jews would be killed. <laughs> and then it became law that had to be enforced by the police of that day. We need to understand that conversations like that have happened in this country. And I know when you read this, you're, there's a part of you in your heart gets outraged that someone would have that much hatred towards a nation of people just because of one man decided not to bow down to another man. But that's how it starts. And then what happens, we begin to generalize everyone. And we say, all Jews are this way. And I'm sure because the culture was so intermingled with one another, there were people of the, the province of, of, of King Xerxes that were friends with some of the Jews. They probably liked them. And I'm sure there were some Jews who bowed down when Haman walked by. But Mordecai said, you know something? There's something bigger at stake. And I'm not doing it. Now, that sounds foolish, doesn't it? Just bow down. It's not a big deal, Mordecai. Just, just, it's just a man. Just bow down. And just go on with your life. But there's something deeper at stake. There's a part of me, because I understand it, I've been created for something greater. I've been, been created for something more. I'm not bowing down to him. I'm only going to bow down to the one who created me. Well, when the edict comes out, Mordecai finds out, and he rips his clothes, and he begins to weep, and his niece happened to be the queen. The queen finds out what's happening. <laughs> she goes to Mordecai and says, what, what, dude, bro, get up. You, you're making it bad for all of us. And Mordecai explains to her, look, they're going to kill us. And her response is, man, that's, that's bad for you. Because she's thinking, I'm the queen. And this is what his son Mordecai responds. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. When I read that, it leapt off the page, jumped in my heart, and was written across my chest for such a time as this. There's so much I want to say about this, and honestly, you know, it's, it's been over three months since I've actually preached in front of people, <laughs> and so I could go on and on, but I'm not going to do that, I, I, but I do want to, I want to leave you with this thought. 
Esther was kind of this ordinary girl, but she was beautiful. And because of circumstances uh, with the king and his wife, she was brought into to be a part of his harem. And she was favored by him because of her beauty. But she had to be prepared for all that. She had to go through some rituals in order to be presented to the king. I'm grabbing my phone because I want to read you a, a quick story. It's something my oldest daughter wrote. Two of my kids are here. But my oldest daughter wrote this the, uh, the other day. And I was at work, and she called me, and she said, Dad, I, I wrote something, and I, I want to read it to you first. And she read it to me. And I have to admit, it, it got the best of me. She wrote, I was six years old. Do I matter? I was six years old. I wanted to change every appearance about me because I didn't look like my peers. I was six years old. I was at school on the playground, and I was told no black kids on the boat. My niece is six years old, and she has already dealt with people judging her, looking at her differently, not wanting to play with her, and wanting her to change her appearance because of the color of her skin. Six. And she had several question marks. Wake up. I was 10 years old. I, I told my mom I wanted to permanently straighten my hair because I wanted to fit in and look like my friends. I was, ten, I was a teenager when I was told, you are pretty, but only for a black girl. I was a teenager when my high school peers told me, I'm black. Why do you talk white? I was a teenager when I was at the grocery store and I was called the N-word by a middle-aged man just for getting groceries. I was a teenager when I first got my license and every time a cop would drive behind me or were close, close by, my heart would race fast in fear like I did something wrong knowing I hadn't. I'm 25 years old now, and I'm raising a black son. He will be a world changer. He will be successful. He will be the change in the voice to this, to, into his generation. But change starts now. Our voices are finally being heard. People are waking up. It's time. It's time. I relate her to Esther. She's saying, for such a time as this, when Mordecai tells her this, I love her response. She says, okay, you have to understand something. I just can't go in front of the king anytime I want to. He has to call for me. He has to summon me. And if I go before him without him summoning me, I'm, I can get killed. But then she says, if I die, I die. Because what's happening and what could happen to my people is far more serious than me staying quiet. I put a 
I posted a video on Facebook last week. And around the fourth century, there was this man named Telemachus. He was a monk from the Asia, uh, from the Turkey region. It wasn't Turkey then, but he heard this voice, and the voice told him to go to Rome. Being obedient, he went to Rome, and he didn't know why he was going, but when he got there, he noticed that the, all these crowds were going into the Colosseum, and he began to follow the crowds into the Colosseum. And he noticed as he entered the Colosseum what was happening. The gladiator games were going on. And he realized in that moment why God had called him there. Being appalled by what he was seeing on the arena floor. He raised his hands and he began to yell to the crowd, in the name of Christ, stop. And, he be, and that was met with jeers from the crowd. But he fought through the crowd and he made his way down, legend has it. He made his way down to the Colosseum floor. He put himself between the two gladiators and looked them in the eyes, piercing their hearts. Once again repeated, in the name of Christ, stop. But being gladiators, one of them took their sword, punched it through the flesh of Telemachus, and he collapsed and began to bleed to death. As his blood began to spill and life began to escape, he gasped breath one last time. He said, in the name. crowd grew silent and one by one they began to leave the arena the emperor witnessed this and he put an end to the gladiator games not long after that God is speaking and he used the last breath of George Floyd to get all of our attention and now it's our turn to say, in the name of Christ, stop. I want to invite my brother up. <laughs> Forgive me for getting emotional. Oh, man. Um, am I, we coming up here? All right. It's been it's been an emotional week. I'm sure that's the case for a lot of you. And I just find myself just kind of just sitting there, not even thinking about things, and all of a sudden a flood of emotions will just kind of rush through my head and and I just begin to weep. Um and my daughter she read that to me, then sent it to me at work. And at work, it's not a place, good place to begin. <laughs> but at, at the moment, I didn't care. Yeah. Let me just, first of all, say thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for... <sighs> has been an emotional week on top of an emotional month on top of an emotional year 
Um, and it's, I was talking to my wife last night and um, I was saying, every time I get on social media or I turn on the TV or I talk to a friend, it feels like I, I, I can't come up for air from the intensity that's happening right now surrounding um, the, you know, in, injustice and, and, and I just felt like not being able to come up for air for me is new, but a, a black family that's probably felt fairly familiar, right? Uh, just wondering if you could talk to us about that a little. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if all of you know, but actually my wife is white. And, uh, and I mentioned that, uh, not just be so you guys are welcoming. Um, <laughs> Side note, I was at a restaurant with Kevin one time and, and his wife, and his wife was sitting next to him, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. <laughs> My wife is staring me down, but um, <laughs> but he, the waitress said, "What kind of rice do you want?" And he goes, "I like my rice like I like my women white." <laughs> oh man! Oh, <laughs> I like vanilla icing too. Anyway, um... there you go, Beth. Hey, Beth. <laughs> When, prior to my daughter sending me that, uh, my granddaughter's mom had put out a post as well. My granddaughter just turned seven this week, and uh, my granddaughter's mom is, is white. My, my son is, is both white and black, obviously. And so my granddaughter's more white than she is black. Yet, she's had to endure this, almost a very similar story to my daughter's at the same age, at six years old. And I said to my daughter, when she sent this to me, I said, I'm sorry. And she said, Dad, why are you apologizing? See, I was naive enough to believe that her story would be different than mine because she has a white mom. And I asked her, I said, well, how come you never told me this? How come you never shared this with me? And once she said, I didn't know how to deal with it. But then she said, I know how you are. <laughs> And I said, yeah. I said, but I believe it's my job to defend you and, and protect you. And you shouldn't have had to deal with that on your own. But here's the reality. That's our, that's our narrative 
when I was in college, and I was with a couple of my friends who, who, who were both black, and we stopped at this convenience store, we got some sodas, and we got back into the car, and I noticed that there was a police car that was in the adjacent parking lot next to the gas station. And as soon as we pulled out, he pulled out as well. And, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> here we go. And just kind of gear up, and you make sure your seatbelt's on, you're making sure you're at two and ten and in, in two, and that uh, you're, you're putting your blinker on way before you turn. All those things, and you're going under the speed limit. And I'm, but they, this police officer followed us for a long time, and I was, I was the one driving. And before I knew it, he pulled us over. And he came up to the car, and he he asked me, he said, whose car is this? What? I'm not going to bore you with all the details of what happened that night, but I can tell you it was extremely humiliating. I was in college at the time, and we went back to our, we, we were roommates, we all went back, and we, we could not believe what just happened. And then it spilled over into the next day. We were in a cafeteria. We're sitting at a table. We're talking about it. And some of our white friends come up, and they're, and they're saying, what's going on? And we share with them. And this, and this was the response. Well, they had to have a reason to pull you over. And when that happens, you learn, I can't share this. This is my isolated story that I have to live alone because you don't understand. Because you say, excuse me, crap like that. And now I have to control my anger, not only about the situation, but I have to control my anger about you right now because you are speaking out of ignorance. So it's been this, to answer your question, it's, it's been this historical kind of enduring thing that it, it's felt so, so isolating. And yet, we, if I see somebody else who, who's black, I, I know they have a story like that without ever having to talk to them. So. feel like um <laughs> I almost just dialed 911 <laughs> Sorry guys <laughs> Wow I've never never had a siren go off from that area before like I, I was excited about this conversation and and nervous about it at the same time and I feel like I feel like I'm I'm ready to take the heat you know like I, like I, I feel like it's just something that we have to do and I say take the heat 
because we live in a society where what we do today is not going to be enough for some. Mm-hmm. It won't go far enough for some, and it's going to go way too far for others, right. Right? right? And we live in a society where people have their, their red pins mm. out at all times, and there's... You know, whether it's an Instagram post or it's a live message or a Q&A like this or whatever, people are constantly editing and, and criticizing, you know, with their red pen. And, and so I feel like um, that culture, particularly in well-meaning people that would not say that they are, uh, they feel anyway racist. Mm. I feel like that that culture, that red pen culture has caused a lot of people to be silent. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I, you know, it's been said numerous, numerous times lately that silence is perpetuating the problem. Right. And... So I just wonder if you could speak to that a little. Absolutely. Um, the uh, we, we are people naturally who love to avoid pain, and we seek comfort. And so, when sensitive issues come up, we 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 want to get through and around that as quickly and as painlessly as possible. And as long as it's not on my doorstep, then I don't have to really deal with it. Because just like the whole COVID thing, when it was, when we understood that people in China were being sick, we're like, well, at least it's not here. When we heard about Italy shutting down, we thought, huh, that's interesting, but at least it's not here. But then when it came here, then it became an issue. Then it became, import- it became important for us. And, it's, and somehow, I, I, the silence is just as evil, I believe, as people saying, all lives matter. If not evil, offensive. And I've had several people say, well, all lives matter, don't they, Kevin? (laughs) No. (laughs) Are you kidding me? My house is on fire. Don't stop me and ask me, how did it start? Don't stop and ask me, well, what's inside of it? Don't stop and ask me, well, um, did you leave something on and don't stop and say you know all houses matter mine is the one that's on fire so let's put that one out first and then we'll take care of the neighborhood because i'm telling you if you don't put my fire out in my house it will spread and that's what's happened There's not a person, and think about this. Had this happened 20 years ago, where there was no, none of these, 
how would we be responding now? The fact that every, just about every American saw it. Now you have to deal with it. And it doesn't matter what actually right now what you say. It doesn't even matter that you say, well, <laughs> there was meth in the system. <laughs> I can't believe some people say stuff like that. But it got you talking. It got your attention. It got you saying something about it. And now when you say stupid stuff like that, there's somebody else saying, what'd you say? And now you're being checked, and now you're having to question, is there something inside of me that needs to get straight? And if we're honest, every single person in this room has something that we need to get right. It just so happens right now we're talking about race. And those who, 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 are stay, who have stayed silent or even say the excuse, well, this is a spiritual issue. It's because you've never bumped into on a personal level or you're close enough to somebody who says, you had a different experience than me. And I want to know what that's like for you. It's funny you say that because I, I was thinking about an experience that I hadn't, I, I feel like it had to have been the Lord that brought this back to my memory because it was, it feels like two lifetimes ago, you know, <laughs> but, um, but I remember when I was in my early 20s, I might not even have been 20 yet, um, driving down the big the big street in Columbus, Ohio, um, you know, high street. And uh, it's very busy, like very fast paced, like, like Lagonia or one of the main streets here, you know? And, um, and, uh, and uh, no, seriously. I, and so I was, I was driving and uh, there was a semi to my left and um, it was, it was driving and all of a sudden out of nowhere, maybe, three or four feet in front of me, this pack of kids run by on, a, on bikes. And I, we're going full speed. It, it was probably 45 miles an hour or something like that. And um, I slammed on my brakes, and I missed the first three kids, and I hit the bike of the fourth kid, and he fell and hit the ground. And I've never been more scared in my life. And the kid was okay. He, his bike was fine and everything like that. Like I had slammed on the brakes like just in the nick of time. And so there just happened to be a police officer nearby. And when I pulled over, two other people pulled over with us that had witnessed what happened. And the police officer came over and those two people said there was nothing he could do about it. It was totally fine. You know, um, it was uh, just these kids being stupid, you know, and he was like, okay, get out of here. And I, I feel like the Lord brought that experience to my mind and said it would have, it, it would have, or I don't know, it could have been very different if you were someone else. 
Mm. Right, right. It's a great point that I, I'm, I'm glad you point that out. Um, when my wife and I first started to date, and uh, maybe we'd go to a store, I, I, uh, this is a very specific story. We actually went to go get ice cream. And uh, I was in my hometown in Ohio. All right. <laughs> a place where I grew up, I knew, I knew people, but I also knew how things were. And uh, my wife gets out of the car and she goes into the store first because I was still filling around in the, in the car. But I walk in behind her and I notice the girl behind the counter, she's being extremely cordial to my wife. And my wife, you know, she's, if you know my wife, she's just, she's just this bubbly person, you know, and uh, she's probably watching, she's beautiful. Best woman in the world, and um, she's 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 loving the experience that we're having together, and she's excited that she's going to get ice cream. And so I walk in, and uh, I had already noticed the girl behind the counter how she looked at me. And I walked up to my wife, and my wife turns around, she hugs me, she puts her arms around me, she said, "Hey, babe, what are you going to get?" And I looked at the girl around the, uh, behind the counter, and I noticed that her face kind of contorted and, and changed. And I looked at my wife. I said, I'm not getting anything. And she said, why not? I thought, you know, you want to try? I said, I did, but we're leaving. She did not have a clue as to why I, I was responding that way. Because, like you said, I, I make friends everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, my anger started getting the best of me in the moment. And so I said, wait a minute. I said, we'll stay. And so I, the girl looks at me. She said, can I help you? I said, yeah. What's the hardest thing to make? <laughs> <laughs> that was her response. And then she told me. I said, that, I'll have that. And I watched her make it. And she made it all up, and it took a while, and I said, never mind, I don't want it. And I left. Yeah. And my wife, when we got in the car, she said, what was that? And again, it was a moment where we could, we could dig into each other, and I could show her, this has been the experience I've had most of my life. And for most people who enter that situation, they're like, Either they're very oblivious to it, or they think, well, you're being very oversensitive. Mm. Well, when it's happened to you, your radar already comes up. Yeah. Some of you don't, I know you can appreciate this. Most of the places I go and have gone, I realize I'm the black guy in the room. And I don't know if you know what that's like. If, if you're, if, if, you, if you're a woman and you walked into a room full of men, you all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. Because every guy's looking, checking you out. <laughs> and you know how uncomfortable that feels. And, and you get sensitive to that. Or if, if, if you're the only one of who you are that enters a room, you're aware. But imagine that happening every time you wake up. You go to school. You go to a, a you, you're on your sports team, whatever the case may be. Every 
everything that you're involved in, there's that kind of thing where you're the only one there. You become sensitive. And you're very aware of what's happening. And, and so I love that you pointed that, that out because quite, quite frankly, if, and actually if God told you it's true, but if you look different, the experience would have been different. Yeah, I believe it. I think a lot of, uh, I've been listening to a lot of people ask questions, a lot of people, um, you know, holding the tension of, we know what happened to George Floyd was wrong. Um, you know, hol holding uh, that, that tension, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmed Arbery. I hear a lot of people holding the tension in their hearts and in their words about knowing that what was done was wrong, you know, um, but also feeling the tension of the <laughs> um, they're feeling the tension of knowing what was done to George Floyd was wrong, but also feeling the tension of, well, I have this friend in my life who's an officer, and I know that he only wants to help people, and he is a good man or woman, and um, what, what do I do with that tension? You know, what do I, how, how am I supposed to feel right now about that tension because um, you know everything I see is is anti-police across the board right now and I have very dear friends that are officers and I had you know obviously all of us, saw, anyone who watched that video of George Floyd, and I watched it from beginning to end, and I was shouting in the middle. Mm. Mm. We see what's wrong, and we feel this tension of knowing good people on the other side. There's right. good people on both sides. Right. So, Talk to me. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. No. I don't know what to do with that tension. There's a. Uh, there's a beauty in how God created us. He created us to be relational. That's always going to be a priority for Him. No matter what we do, ministry-wise, it's always going to boil down to how it is that we're relating. And what motivates that? And, and so, what I what I would say is the big one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we we have a tendency to want to group people all in the same in, in the same category because that makes it easier for us um, to to be able to deal with it. So I, I can just simply make a blanket statement that all cops are evil. Well, we know that's not true. 
One of my closest friends is, is <laughs> this sounds, I, <laughs> this, <laughs> is, is a cop. <laughs> and, and it, and, uh, thank you guys for getting that. Um, but it, it, it's true. And I, I can, he used to be a pastor, and he felt called to be a police officer. And, and I supported him in that, and I love that he's doing that, and, he, and he's, he's an excellent police officer. And, there, and what I discovered, and I was so relieved that I'm like, okay, at least we got one you know, on, our, on our side. And, and honestly, that was kind of a filtering thought that I had. But then I began to meet other police officers. I was like, wow, man, y'all, you guys are kind of cool. But then you have that one or a handful who do stuff like what we saw. And you, you've seen this kind of repetitive thing happen, or, and then you start hearing about it, and you think, man, are all cops this way? No, but they've been brought up and being, they're, they're, have been, they're hosting a system that needs to be restructured. And unfortunately, it puts them in, in certain situations, it puts certain police officers at a disadvantage. And, I'm not, and I hope to hear this, I'm not making any excuse for what happened at all, at all. And then I know there's people who say, what about the police that didn't even say anything? There were those, <sighs> stop. But let's break this down a, a, a little bit. In some homes, there's an abusive person in that home. Yeah. And everybody in the home knows that that person's being abusive. Mm -hmm. But nobody says anything. Why don't they say anything? Well, let's be honest. Can, can we do that? What we're talking about, we're, we're not, we're not, it's not a black-white issue. You know that, right? You, you understand. It's not an issue of black and white. That's just, that's just easy to look at and point at and say, oh, it, this is a black and white issue. Because once we do that, we, we short circuit the whole thing. This is a deeply spiritual issue. This is we're, what we're talking about is an ancient spirit that we know is racism. That's been masquerading itself in our country as something to point at as, as black and white. And it's not, it's not that. But see, we, we don't want to deal with that part of it. We, we want to over-politicize it, or, or we want to over- or under-spiritualize it, or under-politicize it, whatever the case may be, instead of digging at its root and saying, you know something, it's time to take the lid off of this. And, this is, and I believe this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing. He's saying, no, I'm tired I've given you guys ample opportunity to deal with this, and you keep messing it up. So now I'm moving. And think about it. He, he used the perfect—he structured the perfect time for this to happen, to get all of our attention, to say that there's conversation that I, I, I wanted to have years ago. I just didn't know what to say. There, there's things that I wanted to do that uh, I didn't know what to do, but I—, I, I but now it's time to, to, to do that. And so when it comes to the, those who are police officers, it, it, it's not any different. You can't just group them all together 
in one fell swoop and, 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 and blow magic dust and say, okay, we're all healed. Because there's still going to be people who are evil that are coming. So we need to do a better job of saying, what's your motive for wanting to have this badge on your chest? And, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I believe it's a very simple resolution. We do this. You do this every single day. I do this every single day with your wife. Now, think about this. <laughs> this is what I mean. So, do you have a girlfriend before your wife? Yes. Okay. You ever bring her up? Bring her up where? Like, bring up your ex-girlfriend? No. Exactly. <laughs> well, why don't you do that? Tension. <laughs> right. So, and there's a reason why you didn't marry your ex. Yep. Yes. Yeah. But if you start comparing your ex to your current, what's going to happen? My forever. <laughs> your forever. I love that. I love that. If you would compare your ex to Kim, what would happen? What would her response be? Probably be some yelling involved yeah. and uh, anger. Yes. And <laughs> Amen. Come on now. <laughs> and I'm so glad you said that because the police officers who are doing their job well, that's what they say. When they saw what happened in Minnesota, their response was, that's not a comparison to who I am. And that's what we need to understand. But there's only one way to find that out is by entering into a relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it goes the other way too. I think, you know, a lot of people are, are pointing fingers at people who are looting and, mm. you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, causing trouble for local businesses. And, and I don't, I don't get behind violence or looting in any way, shape or form, but everybody who attends a protest isn't a looter. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I remember uh, growing up, I think I shared this with you yesterday. Um, growing up, most of my friends were, were white. And uh, every once in a while, they would say, man, Pring, you're different. Different than what? Than, than other black guys. Right? And I didn't know enough then to ask the right question. But as I got older, and I would hear that, and I'm like, I would ask, you don't know any other black people, do you? <laughs> well, no. So what are you basing this on? You're, you're basing it on a stereotype that somehow, somewhere along the line, you were taught, or it was thrown in front of you in a, in a particular situation, and you assumed that's how it was going to be every time you interacted with somebody who was black. But then you met me, and you're like, well, you don't actually sound black. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, um, you, don't, you don't walk like this. <laughs> like, well, it's interesting because I, this was, and ask any black, black kid who grew up with a black mom, you could always tell 
who she was talking to on the phone, whether it was a bill collector or a relative. <laughs> because if it, was a, if it was a bill collector, it was like, oh, yes, um, yeah, this is her. <laughs> How can I help you? If it was a relative, girl, mm, you ain't gonna believe what that boy did. So, <laughs> so the vernacular, it would change because there's a freedom in, in to be able to let, let it down. But we also understand that when we're part of the broader society, our demeanor, our speech, our language, our, our posturing needs to be different in order to be able to assimilate somehow, if that, if that makes any sense. I got two more questions. Are you guys bored? Okay. Ask him, because he, he gets bored easy. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. Are you bored? No, no comment. All right. All right. So I, I, I feel like we can't, we can't go by without bringing this up. And, and this is something that has brought me to uh, tears more than one time this week is you know, we talked a little bit about silence perpetuating the mm. problem of racism. And, um, you know, I, I, I believe, you know, I've seen it. Um, I've seen it with my own eyes that the church mm. is, is not only guilty of, of silence, and I'm talking about the church, you know, the big C church. I'm not talking specifically about the mission. When we started the mission, we set out for the mission from the very beginning, two pastors ago, from the very beginning, that this place would be a multicultural, multi-generational church where there would be space for everybody. And, uh, but I, I, I do know that the church, the big C church has, is not only guilty of silence, of racism, but they also have, in many cases, have been participants yeah. in it. And as a believer, when I look at Revelation seven, mm. and I see that Re I, I see the description of heaven mm. being that there's a number that no man can count, yeah. and it's people from every tribe and tongue. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the church got this so wrong. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And so I was just wondering if you would speak to that a yeah. little. This is probably the heaviest burden I carry because I'm really close to it, uh, for one. But that's not the only reason. The, 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 the other layer is, I think we all know, you and I especially know, that the church is positioned or should be in position to set the standard for how culture moves. Right. And if we're honest, that's exactly what we've done in regards to this issue. Mm. We've been okay for far too long for to have segregated churches. And we don't say anything out of it. We, we, matter of fact, we, we never challenged that. And up until recently, it's never really been challenged. We've, it's been excused. And, and it's been excused by saying, well, it's okay because of style and preference. Are you kidding me? 
Are you kidding me? And in that, that, that cycle, that evil has, come, uh, has been allowed to continue to perpetuate itself. I was in a conversation with a group of pastors um, in a state I used to live in. <laughs> and it was after Philando Castile was shot, in, in, which happened to be in Minnesota. And so these group of white pastors wanted to get together with some of us who were black pastors to, to talk about this. And they wanted to hear our stories, which I really appreciated. And so we talked and they heard our stories and there was empathy there. And then the question came, what can we do yeah. as, as, a, as leaders of churches? What can we do? And I listened to some of the responses from some of the other brothers, and, and I kind of kept quiet. And, but I had something to say. I was just calculating whether or not I should say it. <laughs> and it, the question came to me. It was pointed to me. And I asked them, I said, stop holding your pulpits hostage. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, how many of you have had a person of color preach in your pulpit? And one of the pastors said, my church isn't ready for that. Well, who's going to make them ready? <laughs> it seems like that's your responsibility. And so that's why I didn't want to say because I knew the can I was opening, and I'm like, oh, whatever. If I die, I die. I'm like Esther in this moment. <laughs> so are you going to continue, are you going to walk away from this conversation, continue doing the same thing you were doing before we had this conversation, and then expecting something different to happen? Yeah. It's not going to. That's right. Until you as the leader where God puts you, and you say, you know something? I don't have to be the only one standing in this pulpit. I can ask other men and women who, are, who know Christ, and see, that's a whole other issue we haven't gotten into, the, the, you know, the whole, we won't talk about that yet, we can talk, that's part two, but, um, but what happens is, is, it's like, tell me how I'm not supposed to be offended by what you just said. Yeah. Explain that to me, because either you're saying I'm not qualified or you're preaching to a bunch of racists, <laughs> you, you, you know? And what, do you, what have you been telling them every Sunday? If you know this is an issue, if you know there's a race issue, and you've never addressed that from the pulpit, what is your problem? So it, 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 it kills me that that's what we do. And... <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Go. It's, it's just been going on for far too long. And we can no longer make the excuse. We, know, we can no longer hold on to that and say, make whatever excuse we need to make to say it's okay for it to look that way. And quite frankly, if, if we keep doing that in this country, I hope God shuts down every single church. I, I really do, because it's not, it's, it's not representative of who he is at all. That does not reflect 
his personality. It doesn't reflect his glory. It doesn't reflect his character. It doesn't reflect his nature. He's not a respecter of persons. And yet we, we have this assumption that, uh, um, <laughs> brother, you're just not ready to, to be in my pulpit or whatever it is that you're trying to say right now. Or it's, you know, we, we, we have black people on our worship team. Yeah, but they're clapping in one and three. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I shared this with a friend. Um, when I remember being in college, and one of the scariest moments of my freshman year was walking into the cafeteria. And I walked in the cafeteria by myself uh, because I was hungry. <laughs> and I walked in and I, I grabbed my food and I looked around and I'm like, where am I going to sit? Because I didn't know anybody. And it was very, it was, it was a frightening moment because, and, and of course, you know, uh, most of the people look like you guys <laughs> in the cafeteria. And I'm like, where am I going to sit? So I'm looking for some a familiar face. And fortunately, there were, there were a couple guys from the football team who had just sat down, and I went over, and I sat down next to them, and they happened to be black. And, and that became like this routine that th this was our seats. And, uh, and so there was this assumption from, from our, our white brothers and sisters that we didn't want any white people sitting with us, which wasn't the case. The, the point that I'm trying to make is if I walk into a church, and if I have a calling on my life, if God has been burdening me, and I walk in, and I'm the only person that looks like me, but I don't see anybody else that looks like me on stage or in leadership, I'm probably never going to address what's happening inside of me, because I don't think it's safe. Yep. And we need the invitation. There needs to be intentionality. I heard a, a white pastor say, we have a multicultural church, and we set out to do that, just like what you said. It was our intent to do that. And he said, if it wasn't going to be multicultural, or if it looked like it, we weren't going to do it. If it ever shifted, if it, if it shifted where it became the majority of, of just this white church with little sprinkles in, we were going to shut it down. And I love that. And that's how it has to be. Yeah, my voice in this, I think, is, is, is important. But I can be construed as the angry black man. <laughs> Your voice is far more vital, I think, in this moment than mine. And this is why I love you so much. And this is why I appreciate about you. I thank you so much for, for, for being an agitator in this. And so I, I just commend you for that. So Thank you, brother. What, <clears throat> what's, what's funny about what you said about the pulpit um, is that I very distinctly, I had you on my mind all week. And 
when I watched the video that you posted, and there's a lot of stuff being posted right now, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I had just begun to feel numb to all of it, but when I heard, when I heard you speak about Talamachus, the monk, you know, I said, I just felt like the Lord said, you need to give that man your pulpit. Mm. You need to give that man your platform. Mm. And um, so I feel like you, you addressed it a little bit, but I just want to end with this last question. And we've tri I've tried to approach this time together as a, at, from a posture of, of listening mm. because I feel like we we can go out and act, but if we haven't taken the time to really hear, mm -hmm. our our actions are just going to be a, a clanging symbol. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, not not saying that our actions aren't important. I'm saying it's 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 important to begin with really hearing listening, asking questions, um, putting down the fear of the red pen, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so what would you say to someone who feels aware of racism in, in our country in a way that they have never felt before right now? Mm -hmm. Where do they, where do they where do we begin? Great, great question. Um, part of the the baby step is having this kind of conversation here, but obviously we don't we don't see each other every day. Uh, we don't live in the same city, but you know we can we're able to keep in touch. But I think what's more important with, for you is how do you begin to engage your family? and bring them into this conversation and discussion as well. Um, so that, one, you don't have to shoulder it all, all yourself. And, and it's some, that's one of the things that we've been able to do. We, we began having this discussion as a, as a family, talking about this, and, you know, and me finding out, and, and my, my kids feeling comfortable enough to be able to sh share things that have happened to them um, in, in their own pain. A good friend had asked me last Sunday, he said, how, it, it's kind of the same question, what do I do? As somebody who, who, who is growing up and most, most of my encounters are with Caucasian people, what, what do I do? How do I begin to address or, or approach this? And and again, it's not. It, this isn't rocket science. It, it really isn't. It, it, it's not as difficult as we've been making it. But this is what I shared with him. I said, every black person you've ever encountered has a story of race. They they, they do, and and they just want to share it. They, and it's not because I want to stand in your pulpit and 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 say, damn all white people, you know, or you know, or do anything like that. It's, it's not even about me having a, a platform. What it is, it's just me being affirmed and dignified as a human being. And so 
what I've discovered being married, you know what I found out when I first got married? I found out when I first got married I'm selfish. Because now I had to... Me too. Yes, yes. I found out I had to share my stuff. And then she would touch it and throw it away. And I'm like, stop touching my stuff. But I realized if this was going to work out, then I needed to allow her to have that some space in, in, in my life in order for, for it to be able to work out. And so as we continue to grow together and as we can, can, our relationship continues to evolve and expand and get bigger, I need to understand her story. Yeah. I cannot, I was, I was in my 20s and, and my wife was in her early 20s when we got married. I was in my late 20s, she was in her early 20s. I cannot relate to her nor would it be fair for me to relate to her as a 22-year-old Beth. And I can't do that anymore. Because there's, there's a story that's there that I need to continue to engage in. And that's what makes our relationship better. Mm-hmm. To answer your question is... <laughs> Marriage is hard. <laughs> Amen. And it's, and it's only hard, and it's not the only reason why it's hard, but it's hard because we, we have to go way below the surface in order for us to move forward. And I, I, I joked with Jason yesterday, I'm going to repeat what I said yesterday, but... Um, you know, when I first met my wife, I mean, that was, I mean, yeah, I thought she was great looking, but I, I really, I, honestly, I, I didn't really want to get to know her. I just kind of wanted to get to know her. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And <laughs> after 25 years, that don't work anymore. I have to, we have to engage differently. And that's also not my motivation for wanting to be in a relationship with her anymore either. I heard somebody tell me this. Love is dignified not by, and this is our culture, we think love is about being with the right person. And so we're, we're in this constant hunt of, if I can just find the right person. Well, then you think you found the right person, and you're like, I married a Martian. <laughs> well, what happened was, the person was always a Martian. <laughs> you just didn't bother to try to get to know that. And so love is dignified by not being so much being with the right person, but it's about being known by the right person. We all want to be known. Yeah. That's what dignifies us. And if we just keep it at the skin color level, we'll never, ever get there. Come on. Come on. <laughs>
come on. That was awesome. Brother, thank you so much. I, I cannot thank you enough. Um, and, and I just want to say one more thing is that our, our community, our, our church community, multicultural, multigenerational, and, um, you know, we, we have not just black and white people, um, you know, we have a, a large, um, significant portion of our community from, from Puerto Rico, from, you know, everywhere, you know, like, that's right. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't just a, a, a black and white issue, you know, some of my friends from, from PR, they've said you, you wouldn't, you know, this is, this has brought something out in me that I, I, I didn't necessarily realize was there, you know, and racism has affected me in, in ways that you would never imagine, you know, and I, and I just want to say, I feel like, you know, I'm just going to speak to the, to the white people in the room for a minute, like, take the time, now is the perfect opportunity to take the time to listen and ask questions and ask people about their stories. Whether you think they've experienced something or not, I, I would say go out on a limb and ask. Right now, I feel like people are more open to dialogue about this than they have been in a long time. And, and don't do it online. Yeah. Look the person in the eye. Um, brother, will, will you, will you pray for us and, um, would you just bless what God's done here? Amen. Amen. My pleasure. Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you guys once, once again, just for allowing this dialogue to happen. Um, it's a start. It's a start. We took, a, we took our first step. And, and it reminds, reminds me of when, uh, when my children were, were first starting to walk. We cheer those very first steps. nothing in us when our kids took those first steps there was nothing in us that thought or looked and said they'll never do that again we looked forward to the day where not only could they walk but they could run and they could jump and they could exercise the gifts and talents that's inside of them. And this, this is what God is doing right now. He's allowing us to take a baby step towards righteousness, towards justice. And we're listening. I thank you, Lord, for the mission church of Redlands who's so willing to go there. I thank you and I pray that eyes of Redlands and the eyes of, of the Indian Empire will be turned towards this church when they begin to ask and question, how do we do this? 
I pray that you would position this, this ministry, this pastor, as an example, as a light, as a beacon for reconciliation, for change, for hope. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And they would turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. We heard you. We're awake, Father. And we know you're speaking because it's made us uncomfortable. Yet, we're willing to go. As you said before Isaiah, who will, who will go, who shall I send? His response was, here am I send me and I believe that's a collective cry from our hearts that are in this room here we are send us in Jesus name God bless you Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.